people say strange things to me sometimes on Sunday morning. Uh, at the beginning of the service, very early, somebody said to me, is this a church or is it a hen house? I said, it's not a hen house, it's family. Then somebody said, are we going to be in Leviticus today? I said, yes. What are we talking about? I said, rest. She said, good, at least it's not something weird. (laughs) Then as Celia was leaving to go downstairs and help with the children, she said, I am never asking those two to pray or read again. (laughs) A key word for our service today has been joy. We have been thinking and singing about joy. We rejoice together this, this week in a special way, marking the birth of the Lord Jesus. Um, joy is among those words that we associate with Christmas. Uh, we associate words like uh, hope and love and giving. And uh, perhaps equal only to joy is the word peace. Uh, peace was, was part of the original angelic announcement, wasn't it? Uh, peace on earth, the angels said. Behind me are the banners uh, hanging that, that quote those lines from Isaiah chapter 9 that the Lord Jesus will be the Prince of Peace. And on Tuesday night when we gather together for Christmas Eve, we'll sing about the Lord Jesus who uh, went to sleep in heavenly peace. Uh, Travis Tritt, the country singer, uh, used to, uh, he started his career singing in a lot of out-of-the-way Uh, uh, places with customers who often uh, drank too much and fought over really small things. And he said that uh, when the room started to look a little tense and when things began to get a little ugly, he would always break out in singing Silent Night. He said, it could be the middle of July, I didn't care. Sometimes they'd even start crying standing there watching me sweat and play Christmas carols. Now, why did that song work so well in those situations? I wonder, some of you, your initial inclination might be to say sentiment, nostalgia. It's a sweet song. We associate with a nice time of the year. Uh, Philip Yancey wrote once about how singer Jesse Norman quieted an entire stadium, a soccer stadium in Great Britain, by singing Amazing Grace. Sentiment? Uh, you, you should not be surprised that I think more is going on in the singing of those songs, in the communication of that message, than just nostalgia or just sentiment. Peace is, is one of the key words for Christmas, is it not? But this is not one of our chief experiences, peace, at this time of year. A.W. Tozer complained about this. Yeah, he said, Christ came to bring peace, and we celebrate His coming by making peace impossible for six weeks of each year. He died in 1967. He didn't realize that we would stretch that dis-peace for at least six more weeks. Actually, he said this, Jesus came to help the poor and we heap gifts upon those who do not need them. Peace is, it seems to be elusive everywhere, doesn't it? Uh, uh, there's no peace in the Middle East. We've been trying to get peace in the Middle East for decades. Uh, there's no peace in the Central African Republic. No peace in South Sudan. No peace in Congress. Not much peace on television. Not on the roads, not in the malls. Uh, Some of your Christmas celebrations on Wednesday will be uh, 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 fragile because of of dis-peace in your family. We, We think globally, we can think nationally, we can think locally, we can think about your family, but I wonder about what's 
happening here in your heart? How much peace is there? Are you unsettled? Are you unhappy? You have the sense that things just aren't right. They're not the way you're, they're supposed to be. And actually, maybe you feel a little bit of guilt about that. We sing joy to the world, and yet on the inside, you feel about as gray as the sky is today. I want to think with you for a few minutes about the subject of peace and what it's supposed to do and where it comes from and why it seems to be so fragile. And I want to do it uh, by looking with you at an unexpected uh, passage. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn me to Leviticus chapter 23, if you would, with me this morning. We are walking these days through this Old Testament worship manual. This is how the Israelites were to worship God And we're coming to this section of Scripture devoted to their holidays. We're in our holiday season, Thanksgiving to Christmas to New Year's. And here are the holidays that the ancient Israelites were supposed to mark. And there are themes here that that speak to our cares and concerns. What's going to happen over the next several weeks, Lord willing, is we're going to look at these seven holidays that are laid out for the Israelites. But today what I want to do is I want to look at, at the first the weekly celebration of peace. See, what's here in this passage is there is an enforced rest upon the people during these holidays. That's one of the themes that continues all the way through. And that rest is supposed to be a foundation. It's the staging ground for the the marking or the enjoyment of peace. Well, let's read together here. The first couple of verses of Leviticus chapter 23. You can follow along as I read. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, These are my appointed festivals. The holy days. The holidays. Holidays. The appointed festivals of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. What will follow is seven of them. But in verse 3, there is a weekly celebration. There are six days when you may work, but the seventh is a day of Sabbath rest, a day of sacred assembly. You are not to do any work where you live. It is a Sabbath to the Lord. This is the law that God established, and most of you are quite familiar with this. Uh, For one day of the week, the seventh day of the week, the people were to have two priorities. They're listed in this passage. Rest, resting from their work, and that word work there means Um, the profitable labor that they do, your job, your occupation, rest from your work, and secondly, sacred assembly. It's a day of rest and a day of sacred assembly. In the camp of the Israelites, the trumpet would sound and everyone would gather together. This morning what I want to do is I want to show you how this command for Sabbath rest is a theme that runs all the way through the Bible. It deserves actually very careful attention. Uh, Tim Keller said that we ignore rest to our peril. It's one of the Ten Commandments. One of the important uh, principles here that are at the beginning of the law that God established for the nation of Israel. Uh, Just think, it's as dehumanizing to ignore what the Bible says about rest as it is to murder or commit adultery, or to steal. The Sabbath was also one of the central identifiers of the nation of Israel. When the Israelites were were heeding the law carefully, they loved the Sabbath. It was central to their identity. 
Um, this is the month where we see everywhere symbols and signs of Christmas. You know them. You see them everywhere. Uh, trees, Christmas trees. And there's uh, pictures of Santa everywhere and reindeer and candles and angels and Frosty and Rudolph and reeds. They're all over the place. This is Christmas. We hang the signs of Christmas up so that you can see them. For the Israelites... For them to be an Israelite was to acknowledge the Sabbath, to have that in their thinking. It was, it was as important as a tree is for Christmas. Now, actually, the, the close identification of the Sabbath with Israel is one of the reasons that I don't believe that we Christians are bound to a one-day period of seven, uh, one-day in seven period of, of rest. I, this is a, um, an issue over which believers disagree, um, I think we should listen carefully to what the Bible says about rest, and I'm more than willing to take advantage of the, the Christian cultural heritage of setting aside Sunday for worship. We'll take advantage of that. But I don't think that Sunday is the Christian Sabbath. And, and I'm not really convinced by those who, who uh, believe that the New Testament sets aside Sunday as the Lord's Day, that, that it demands that, that we treat it differently. I want to show that to you from the Bible. One verse, two things about it. I'll say in passing and then we'll move on. It's listed on your, your uh, salmon-colored sheet that's in your Bible. Maybe if, if you have that in front of you. Look at Romans 14.5 and what it says. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Now, this verse in the entire context of the chapter, I think, teaches us two things. One, we are not bound by the New Testament to mark certain days. One person considers one day more sacred than the other. Another person considers every day alike. So we're not bound by the New Testament to consider days differently. But, secondly, there are some who are bound by conscience that way. And it's not something over which we are to argue or to fight we are to live in loving disagreement with one another over this issue. That's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, what I want to do, what I want to explore with you today, though, is what the Bible says about rest. Sabbath here is, is in Leviticus, is underneath it. It's around it. Sabbath is the context in which rest is supposed to flourish. It's, a, it's an image of rest. I want to think about what Sabbath points to and what the Bible says itself about rest. And I want to consider two ways with you that the Bible speaks about rest. The first way is creation rest. Creation rest. That is, rest is tied to creation. We're created beings, and the discipline of rest embedded on the Sabbath day celebration, it, it, it points to uh, our role as created beings in the world. And it actually allowed the Israelites to communicate significant things about what it means to be made in God's image, what it means to be a creature under God. Um, I don't think we're bound, again, by, to this one in seven day period of rest, but, but when we take rest seriously, these are the principles, these are the things that are supposed to guide us, that are moving through our mind as we think about what rest is and what rest is for and what rest is, accomplishes. I want to show this to you, but first I want you to see the connection between creation and rest. Look at Exodus 20, verse 8. This is from the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. 
Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. Now here's the creation connection. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So when we cherish rest, what does it communicate? Three things. First, it declares that God is sovereign over time. God is sovereign over time. He is the creator and thus he has the right to determine our schedules. He has the right to tell us how to order our lives in work and rest. When He made us, He embedded within us a need for rest. Life works best when we value rest, when we pursue rest and practice rest. Most of us fail in this balance between work and rest that the Bible calls us to. There's this rhythm to life, though, that God Himself has established. He's sovereign over time. There's numerous examples of how this works, so how this, this thinking about rest and how embedded it is in our uh, lives and, and in our flourishing. Uh, during the 1800s, and, and Marva Dawn tells this story, during the 1800s there was a, a wagon train that was heading to Oregon. They were going out west. And they very carefully walked and traveled for six days of the week. And on, the seventh, uh, on Sunday, actually, this is a group of, of Christian pioneers, on Sunday they stopped and rested and didn't go. There was a group, though, within them that was a little unsettled about this and a bit anxious because it was almost winter. Winter was coming and they wanted to get out west and settled before those cold, bitter winds um, blew across the plains they were, they were traveling. So they decided to split into two groups. They couldn't decide what to do. They divided into two groups and one of the groups went off. We're going to travel seven days a week. We're going to make it. The other group, though, continued their pace. Six days of walking, one day of resting. Well, it was that latter group, the group that stopped to rest, that actually made it to Oregon first. The, the day of rest enabled them to move faster and more efficiently all the other six days. God has built into creation this rhythm. You need rest. So, we acknowledge here, it declares God is sovereign over time. Second, creation rest expresses confidence in God's provision. It expresses confidence in God's provision. Um, what are you saying about your life and your ability to produce when you stop working? When you stop producing? This is a struggle for the Israelites. The, the prophet Amos actually mentioned it. Um, all around them, other nations, they didn't stop producing. They didn't start farming. They didn't stop making things. They were working and working and working. And the Israelites stopped. Their tools were silent on the Sabbath. They weren't accomplishing anything. What were they saying? By doing so, they were acknowledging that God is their provider. He, he's the one who cares for them. He's ultimately the one that gives them what they need. They were limited at, as creatures in what they could accomplish. I wonder how much of your work is driven by fear. Just anxiety. I have to produce for myself. I have to produce for my family. I can't, I can't stop. Third, this, this period of rest celebrates God's perfect creative work. And celebrates God's per perfect creative work. 
Now, by the use of that word perfect, some objections to this should be forming in your mind. Objections that I'm going to talk about in just a minute. But follow me here. You remember all the way through the book of Leviticus, the Israelites were told, be holy for I am holy. Be holy like me. Imitate God. And here is one way that the Israelites were to imitate God. Because Genesis tells us that on the seventh day, God rested from his labors. Now, that's that's strange. Why, why does God need to rest? God doesn't need rest. You and I need rest, but God doesn't. Um, some of you have exhausting jobs. Uh, or if your, main life, if your main work in life is caring for little children, you desperately need to rest. God doesn't tire like that, though, does He? Um, God can dig ditches and hammer nails and change diapers and fold laundry and talk to customers and answer little questions, little kids' questions all day long. He doesn't need to stop working and, and rest in that way. So why did He rest? What's going on in Genesis that God is resting on the seventh day? It was not physical rest. Rather, it was a celebration for God. It was a reflection. It was a ceasing of His work that came from satisfaction in it. All week long, when God called the world into existence, He had been saying, this is good, this is good, this is good. And on the sixth day, when it culminates with the creation of man and woman, God says, this is very good. And He steps back and He says, this is it's done and it's, it's, it's beautiful It's good. He was content and happy in the work that he had done as creator. Some of you know what that sense of accomplishment is like, standing back and looking at a job like that. When I was in seminary, I had a friend who called me. He had also gone to seminary, graduated before I did, and uh, was working as a pastor. And he called me one day and we were talking, and he told me about his new hobby, uh, participating in triathlons. And I, I was talking, and he said, you should do it too. Why should I participate in triathlons? He said, because when I do a triathlon, I cross the finish line and I'm done with something. That I never feel like in my job that I'm actually finished. But when I run a race, I'm done. I've finished it. Some of you have jobs like that. Some of you have jobs where very project-oriented and, and you, you can, can finish something. Some of you have jobs that you just never actually finish anything. But you have this sense, you know what this is like, right? The, the most vivid memory I have of, of this sense of accomplishment is when I was in high school and I used to mow my church's lawn. It's my job. Stand behind that lawnmower for an hour and a half, that noisy, fume-producing, rattling machine, and push that around. And then when I was finished, I, I let go of the handle, the safety handle, and the, the mower went silent, and there I was, blessed quietness. And there's that smell, that grass smell. It's been cut. And you look across the lawn and there's neat rows and it's freshly trimmed and freshly cut. Oh, the lawn looks great. I get that same sense of satisfaction when I shovel my sidewalk. Nice, neat rows. It's all done perfectly well until my children traipse through it and ruin my neat, perfect rows. Rest on the Sabbath was, was an imitation of God. It was an act of worship. It was a sense of delight in the world that God made. Look at, look at the things that God has done. 
Now, if I were to ask you about the role of rest in your life and how infused it is with these values, these three things, I wonder what, what you would, would say. This, this vision of rest is, is a fragile thing. It can be spoiled by dozens of factors. Let me just mention a couple of them. Maybe, maybe you live in a pattern of not work and rest, but you live in a pattern of work and worry. There's a certain amount of trust involved in stopping work. You're driven by this need to provide, to accumulate, so you can stop. If you're not working, you're worrying about what you should be doing. Maybe you're not trying to get ahead. Maybe you're just trying to keep up. There's not enough hours in the day. There's not enough days in the week for you to do all the things that you think you should be doing. Maybe, maybe you have it in your mind, I'm going to rest someday. Someday I'm going to rest when the house looks better, when the projects are done, when things are put in order. Kathy and I had a conversation once with a woman. She told us she was talking about her weekend, and she said, yeah, my house was clean and my laundry was all done, so I decided to go to the mall. And we looked at her and we thought, I, we, what? I mean, the whole house at once? was clean and all the laundry, there wasn't a scrap anywhere that was dirty. It was all done at once. We didn't understand what she was talking She might as well have been talking about putting her robot children in her flex capacitor. We had no idea <laughs> what she was talking about. It was all done. Some of you have this in your mind. Everything's got to be just perfect in order for me to rest. Why is that true about you? Maybe this vision of rest uh, is... Um, uh, shattered because when you rest, it's not really rest. It's um, just amusement. There's a difference. There's a big difference between rest and amusing yourself. Uh, You're not working, but you're not resting either. You're watching a movie or you're playing a video game or you're surfing the Internet. You're being entertained. We always want to be entertained. And there's a difference between resting and being entertained. Gordon MacDonald says that sort of entertainment, amusement, is like junk food for the soul. It's satisfying but not nourishing. They could be uh, factors in why this uh, fragile creation rest is often elusive. But I think there's actually something else going on, something more pervasive, something deeper. There's a certain sense of restlessness in us because the world that we live in is not at rest itself. There's not enough peace. The world doesn't produce rest. If if the ultimate experience of rest is not just taking a break from work, not just stopping from work, but instead being satisfied with the good work that, that God has done when He created the world, we can clearly see the world hasn't been that perfect for a long, long time. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. There's this sense of restlessness. Think about your Christmas celebration, how it's going to go. Maybe you've been working on this for several weeks. You've been thinking about it maybe for a couple months. I wonder how satisfied you're going to be on Wednesday when when here it comes. You'll sit down at the table and, and, well, you're aiming for perfection, but the turkey, it's going to be a little dry. And the gravy, well, maybe there's slightly lumpy. Maybe you got stuck at the place at the table where they put the card table next to the real table and there's like three legs and you can't really push your chair in and there you are trying to eat. And it's not straight. And 
Maybe, maybe you'll be sitting at the table and, and to your horror, you'll look down and someone managed to put green beans on the Christmas table for dinner. Some Grinch put that awful vegetable in the, in, within reach of you. Something will be wrong. A present won't fit. It will break soon after you open it. Uh, it will be the wrong color or it will be tense around the table because you know how your parents really feel about your new brother-in-law. And here you are sitting around the table. It's, it's not rest. It's, it's not peace. It's not, it's not right. It's, it's not just going to happen on Wednesday, this sense of unease. What if, what if your life is like that? Things aren't right. Not meeting my expectations. Not meeting other people's expectations. I'm not doing what I think I should be doing. I'm not doing what I want to be doing. I, just things aren't right. The Bible says that there's both an inside and an outside problem. Charlie Brown was once listening to Lucy and she said, I hate everything. I hate everybody. I hate the whole wide world. And Charlie Brown said, but I thought you had inner peace. And Lucy said, I do have inner peace, but I still have outer obnoxiousness. It's an inside and an outside problem. The outside problem is that the world is broken. It's broken because of our sin. There's this worldwide conspiracy against God's sovereignty. And you and I are a part, a part of it. This is part of creation rest, isn't it? We have rejected this uh, sovereign God. The world doesn't work as it's supposed to be because it's bearing the burden of our own claims to sovereignty. In Psalm chapter 2, the Bible speaks about the kings of the earth who rise up against the Lord and His anointed Son. In rebellion against God, they conspire against Him. They band together against Him and, and God in heaven laughs. There's a systemic problem. This cruel world, as that hymn says, is not a friend to grace. It doesn't help us onto God. During the French Revolution, those leading the movement, they wanted to excise from culture every mark of religion and, and royalty. So they reinvented time and they reinvented the calendar. Uh, there were 12 months in this new French revolutionary calendar, uh, but they each had 30 days, and life was supposed to work in 10-day segments. You worked for nine days and had one day off. Worked for nine days more, had one day off. They divided the, the, the time into periods of 10. The, the system fell apart under its own weight. This effort to remove God is a human problem, and we all contribute to it. That's an outside systematic problem. But there's also an internal problem, this internal sense of restlessness. Ephesians describes those who are disconnected from God as those who are always craving but are never satisfied. It's a symptom of our personal disconnect from God. I'm going to do things my way. I'm going to manage my life. It's a broken system, a broken people rejecting God's authority, His presence. Now, some people respond to the reality that things aren't the way they are supposed to be by putting in more effort. With a little bit, if I work a little harder, if I manage a little more, if I, if I, if I, if I can control my circumstances and the people around me a little bit better, it'll be okay. We are working people. We live in Lancaster County, right? We take pride in the fact that we, we can work. 
But if you're your own sovereign, no matter how much work you do, it's not going to work. You're not qualified. You can't create your own goodness through your own efforts. If you're trying to save yourself, if you're trying to fix your world through your own efforts, you're going to fail. You'll never be at rest rejecting God as sovereign. The Bible is concerned with, with, physical, with rest as a physical act, but you don't need to read it very far to discover that most restlessness does not come from physical realities. There's, there's more going on, which actually leads me to my second form of rest that the Bible talks about. Not just creation rest, but the second form of rest here is redemption rest. Redemption rest. Redemption rest comes as a result of a rescue. The second major theme of the Sabbath for the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 5, it's not written there, but in Deuteronomy chapter 5, the Israelites are commanded to keep Sabbath because why? God has rescued them from slavery. Their rest is a result of, of rescue. God created a world that was perfect. Its perfection is to be celebrated, but it's, it's now broken due to, to sin. And God promised to repair it, to redeem it. And one step along the way involved establishing and carrying this nation that, that we're reading about in the book of Israel. This week, we had some work done at our house. Lots, lots of work to be done. One of the things involved was, was a spackling part, part of the wall. It's not finished. Well, the spackle's up. The project isn't completely finished. It needs to be painted. But as part of the process, they made their own spackle with a little bit of powder, a little bit of water, and a little bit of mixing. God here in, in the book of Leviticus is, is getting together the tools through which he is going to rescue the world. The Israelites, he's, he's gathering them together. The project isn't finished in the book of Leviticus, but he's, he's getting things together. He's going to, through this nation, he's going to save the world. It's, he's going to provide a rescuer through them. They rested on the Sabbath to mark this. We have a special relationship with God, the God who made us and the God who rescued us from slavery. And then there was another form of rest. He said he was going to carry them to the promised land. This is another step in the process. They're going to go into the promised land and there's going to be rest for them there as they live under God's law, God's people in God's land. Joshua was supposed to bring them into the promised land and give them rest. But they were afflicted with the same disease of sin that we are and they pushed back against God's sovereignty and this is a rest they never achieved. In fact, the Bible talks about this. Turn with me over to Psalm 95, if you would, in your Bibles. Psalm 95. I want to show this to you here, this theme of rest as it's developed in the Bible. Psalm 95. Psalm 95. You'll find it on page 595 in your pew Bibles if you want to... Um, use that Bible, Psalm 95. Psalm 95 has two calls to worship in it. Verse 1, come let us sing for joy to the Lord. Verse 6, come let us bow down and worship. And then right here before verse 8 starts, the last line of verse 7, look at this warning. Today, if only you would hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me, they tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray. They have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. The diagnosis here is simple. They have hard hearts. They have straying hearts. They have rejected God's ways and they have forfeited God's rest. 
There was an Indian mystic who once made an observation about a stone he found in a river. It's a pretty large round rock. And, and he picked up this rock and he threw it down uh, hard enough to break it and it opened. And, and though that rock was, was soaked on the outside, wet on the outside, on the inside it was, it was dry. He made this observation. He said, look at this rock surrounded by water for how many years and the water never penetrated inside. The Bible talks about human beings that way. Here we are surrounded by evidences everywhere of God's presence, His power, His goodness, His justice, His his righteousness. But hard-heartedness characterizes us and the truth does not enter in. God came to, to rescue the Israelites, but they didn't listen. And the New Testament actually tells us that the offer of rest still stands. God is still in the business of giving rest. Look at Hebrews 4. It's on the sheet here. I printed this verse out. Hebrews 4, verses 9 through 11. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There still is rest. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from His Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following there the Israelites' example of disobedience. And of course here you have written Matthew 11, the greatest invitation to rest ever offered. Jesus himself said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Is anybody wearied and burdened? This, this imagery of yoke that Jesus is, is, is speaking is, is important. It, it sets off thoughts that should, should connect, we can make connections in the Bible. In, the, in Jesus' day, if, when you became a committed follower of, of is, if you became a committed uh, follower of the God of the Bible, when, when you became an adult and took up responsibilities to follow the law of Moses, it was called taking up the yoke. The law was like a yoke. And for many of these uh, first hearers, or the, the, the people in Jesus' day, they were confused. They thought that this is how they satisfied God, by taking up the yoke. They thought that, that this is how uh, they earned God's approval, by taking up the yoke. Jesus here, notice, so he says, take up my yoke. I have a different yoke for you. It's my yoke. It's a resting yoke. If you wanted to train two animals, or actually a very inexperienced animal, to pull a yoke, to pull a plow with a yoke, an ox, you would take that inexperienced animal and you would pair him up with a very experienced ox. And you'd put the two of them together, and that inexperienced ox would be confused in the yoke and would probably pull sometimes the wrong way or at the wrong time or would buck under the control of the yoke. But the experienced animal was there to provide the strength and the stability that would teach the younger, more inexperienced animal how to work, how to serve in the field, how to actually be productive here. And Jesus says, I'm in the yoke following my Father's will. Come, come, come with me. This is how you find rest. This is the Bible's invitation to rest. Be yoked with, with Jesus. 
Why do you need rest? You need rest from the thorns and the barbs and the sorrows and the griefs of living in this broken world. You need rest from the demanding expectations that tell you um, how, what you should be able to do and what sort of person you, you should be. You need rest from the persistent voices that you hear that tell you that if you just work a little harder, if you just move a little faster, then you can make it. You need rest from yourself. You need rest from the chaos that you introduce into your own life because of your selfishness and your pride and your anger and your greed. And the angels said, with the Lord's coming, peace on earth. How is that possible? The the birth of the Lord Jesus. He's the one who has come to reconcile us to God and, and reconcile His creatures, we who live in rebellion against Him, to Him. This restlessness that we have comes in a dozen different flavors, but it has one root. And the root is our disconnect from God. Uh, everybody here has had the experience of having a stone in your shoe. Did you have that? You walk along and, oh, this pain, pain. It feels like you have Mount Everest in your shoe. And then you take off, you stop, you, stop, you have to. You stop and take off your shoe and you pull out it's this tiny, tiny little pebble. But it, it touched, it inhibited your ability to function. Well, the Bible here, when it talks about our relationship with God, it never describes it as a tiny thing. It's certainly not. But it is something that affects your ability to function as a human being. This disconnect from God is, is at the root of all of the fruit of, of this restlessness. So the Lord Jesus has come. He has come to restore peace. And He did it by bearing the wrath that we deserve in our rebellion against God. He died as our substitute on the cross. He bore our punishment. And it's that punishment, the Bible says, that brings us peace. He satisfied God's justice and now He invites you to be restored to a peaceful relationship with God by faith. The book of Hebrews say, says, let us make every effort to enter this rest. That means stop trusting in whatever you think is satisfying you now. Whatever voices that you are listening to, you, to that tell you that you don't measure up, that you're not good enough, that you're not sufficient, that, that's driving you to work so much. Stop trusting in them. Stop trusting in your ability to produce. Stop trusting in your beauty, your skill, your wisdom. Stop trusting in your cynical sense of of self-detachment here. Stop trusting in your job, your competence, your money. Turn from those things to the Lord Jesus. Take up your yoke. That's what Sabbath ultimately points to. Peace in the Lord Jesus. Actually, there's there's one more element that I should describe from the Sabbath uh, briefly. Do you remember that it said in in Leviticus 23.3 that that Sabbath is a cessation of work and it's what? For sacred assembly, gathering together. Why is that? Why didn't God demand that the Israelites have a moment of silence? Stop working on the Sabbath and when you hear the trumpet sound, uh, everybody have a moment of silence to think about the goodness uh, that I have in creating the world and calling you together. Why? Why did he demand that they all come? It must have been inconvenient. What was the purpose of the sacred assembly? I think it's because the Israelites needed to remind one another of the reasons that they are resting. 
of the God who called them together. God's appointed means to remind them of the joy of resting in Him is their joining together for worship. When your kids ask you, why are we going to church again? Do we have to go to church? We were up late last night. Are you sure we have to go to church? Yes, we have to go to church because we need to remind one another as we sing and listen. We need to remind one another of the rest that God has provided us through the Lord Jesus. That's why we meet together. I told you before, I'm I'm sure, uh, maybe every year I do this. Uh, the story behind the, the Christmas carol that we're going to sing in just a minute to finish our service. It's, it's one of my favorites. Uh, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day was written by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. He wrote it during the Civil War. Uh, a few years before the conflict broke out, his wife died in a tr- terrible accident. She was trying to light a lantern. She spilled some of the oil and it, it caught in the, her, the skirt, her dress, and she died um, while her husband was trying to put out the flames with his own hands. He died there before him. As as the war started, uh, Longfellow was somewhat detached, and and against his his father's wishes, um, his son, Longfellow's son, entered the fighting. And and a few weeks before Christmas, uh, Longfellow received the news that his son had been severely injured uh, in one of the most important battles in the Civil War. So on Christmas Day, he woke up. This had been his experience over the last few years of his life. And on Christmas Day, he woke up and he heard the bells uh, ringing out. And he heard in those bells the echoing of the angels' voices. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Their old familiar carols play. And wild and sweet, the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. His confidence breaks, though, he, he writes in this poem. He's grieving still. He's worried for his son. He writes this. In despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and it mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. As he writes, though, he he begins to think. He pushes back against his own sorrow. He writes generically, perhaps he writes more than he knows, but listen, he says, Then peal the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill toward men. I don't know the extent of Longfellow's faith. It's a debated topic, but he knew at least enough to point us in the right direction. God's not dead, he's not asleep. In fact, he's come to rescue us. And you may have peace through the Lord Jesus. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we bow our heads at this moment in time, not in despair, but to speak to you, the living God who is fully awake and who has invited us to rest. Father, we confess to you that we are the source of our own restlessness. Uh, We are are living on a a treadmill that we have built trying to fix things, trying to earn our way, trying to um, meet the approval of, of all kinds of people around us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you offered us your yoke. Give us eyes that are attentive to you in how you move and in what you do and in where you go. 
Uh, Father, we, we thank you for this, this command. Make every effort to enter the rest. We would be those um, who are, are faithfully living out this confidence that we have in, in the Lord Jesus. For those who are, who are here this morning who are not followers of Christ, we, we pray that you would um, open hard hearts so that the light might come in and so that they might turn and trust in what Christ has done on the cross. Grant us the peace that comes from knowing that we have reconciliation with God, with, with you, through the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.